Welcome to uh, Neighborhood Bible Church this morning. Kids, thanks for working with us. Uh, hopefully on the way in you received a little, um, a little handout. You can pull that out if you'd like to. If you're a note taker or a doodler, that helps uh, keep things on track sometimes. Uh, Mark 1 is where we're going to start this morning. So you can start flipping open to there if you didn't bring a Bible. Uh, you can use the one in your chair there. If you don't own one, please take that Bible. We'd like to just gift that to you. <clears throat> um, any other baby tossers in here? Anyone like to toss babies around? Yeah. There's something about uh, some of us that um, one of the ways we show affection towards kids is to throw them. And I think, it, for me, I, you know, I think about sports. I love throwing balls. And I think that just carried over into my parenting. I just, I'm real physical with my kids. I love just wrestling with them and, and tossing them around and, and all that fun stuff. Um, Anyone uh, ever get vomit in your face from a baby? Okay, some of the same hands. Did you notice that? Uh, bonus points if it got in your mouth. Anyone get it in your mouth? Yeah, that's happened before. That is not... You don't forget it. It's a little shameful, but you don't ever forget. You don't think long on that question. Um, that is what we would call an unintended consequence, right? An unintended consequence is where you are striving for something good and a bad result happens. Life is full of unintended consequences. Um, we're going to talk about serving today, Christian service, Christian ministry, and some unintended consequences, um, I think, often can, can come when we start talking about, about serving God. And, um, and, and here's one of, the, one of the ways that I mean that. Um, the Bible is a really, really big book. Uh, even if you have kind of a fine print edition, it covers a lot of ground. Has anyone else noticed that? Right? It's a huge book. And so it's possible for people um, like me, on a day like this, in a location like this, to be teaching from the Bible and, and even inadvertently, unintentionally, lead people down a path where they are motivated by guilt and shame to serve God. And to do it from the Bible. Uh, let me, let me give you a few examples from my week. Okay. Here are just a few of, of, of my examples that I observed this week as I was thinking about Christian service and that sort of thing. I got an email this week that told me that my family needs a great husband and a great father who's intentionally loving them. Now, that's a true statement and the Bible speaks to those sorts of things. Um, but, but that begins to stir some things in me, begins to, to move in, uh, some, some things in me. There's a book I'm reading that teaches um, that God's love for the lost is huge and that we need to reach out to people in love. True statement from the Bible, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's another one. I was invited uh, via an email ad uh, to a conference that informed me that our church needed me to grow as a leader for the health of it. That's a lot of burden to take on, right? Um, true? Yeah. I mean, I really believe speed of the leader, speed of the team kind of a thing. I think there are some principles in Scripture that teach that. Then I'm just uh, innocently shopping at the grocery store, and I'm confronted with this after I swipe my ATM card. Okay, this is at Safeway. Do you want to help the needy children? Yes or no? And I'm going, man, I just want to get my groceries. I'm like, can you go back to paper or plastic? That's an easy one. Of course I want to help the needy children. 
but not with you, not in this way. I guess I'll click no, right? I only wrestled with it the first time. Now I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> Here's the point. With chapter and verse, so with Bible backing, I can point you to any number of causes, needs, or ways to serve that are really, really important and really, really urgently in need of people serving in those areas. Let me rattle off a few. Global missions, human trafficking, economic inequality, mentoring, education, orphan care, the greeting team, clean water in Africa. I've just scratched the surface, right? We are, um, as Christians, I think great at feeling obligated to more. So even, even in here on a Sunday morning, remember unintentional consequences, there can be a message that goes something like this. You should be, now even if I don't say this, communication's two-way. You might take this on yourself. You should be praying more, giving more, serving more, evangelizing more, reading more, volunteering more, loving more. Right? Anyone ever feel obligated to more before? Raise your hand. I think most of us have. We get these messages put out there and, and intentionally or not, sometimes we take those on as, I really should be doing more. It's pretty easy to take your passion, things that you're passionate about, things that you're uniquely, uh, uh, caring about, and beat up people who aren't caring about those same things at the same level as you. And it's possible to do that even with yourself, right? So, good intentions can sometimes yield bad results. Is it okay to be passionate about global missions? Say yes. Absolutely. Human trafficking and clean wells. That's kind of two of the hot global issues right now. Is it good to be passionate about those? Absolutely. Can we find scripture uh, to back up both of those? Yeah, absolutely. But what I, what I want to offer you this morning, what, what my goal this morning is this. Can we just get a little bit of clarity, please? Because I think the unintended consequence of some of this is exhausted, guilt-motivated, beat up by shame Christians, and maybe even confused Christians. Is this another thing that I have to take on? I don't know if I can take much more on. Clarity... Please. All right, we're in this series about prioritizing like Jesus. The greater than symbol that we all learned as kids that points to the one that's, that's bigger, that's more important, that's more weighty. How, how are we to, to arrive at those kinds of things? We're talking about serving. How, how to pick greater than in the area of serving. If you were to summarize Jesus' life and work and mission, uh, choosing to call him a servant of all of his titles wouldn't be a bad choice. Prophets talked about a suffering servant. Uh, he referred to himself that way. Philippians 2, 5 to 7 is in your notes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, underline this, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of you and I. 
So there it is in Philippians. Look at Matthew 20, 28 from the words of Jesus, from the mouth of him. The Son of Man, a title he gave to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Circle the word came. Jesus came to serve and to give. Now, it stands to reason that as disciples of Jesus Christ, if our master saw himself as a servant, if the scriptures clearly teach, I've only pulled out two passages, you see this all over the Bible, and it says that he was a servant, it stands to reason that to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, should we not serve? Yeah. Should we not be givers? Absolutely. But, yes, but, uh, this is not a more sermon. So one of the things I want you to guard against as recipients of some words flowing out of my mouth is to maybe go into the pattern of taking this on as, I think I can cram that in my already overstuffed backpack. Let me try. So if you are walking out of here um, with a more, obligated to more kind of message, I've either completely failed my job or you checked out or there was a disconnect somewhere. That is not what this sermon is about. This is not a more sermon. Rather, what I'm wanting to do, remember in this whole series, I'm not trying to fill in. We don't want to fill in your to-do list, your priority list. That's your job before before God. I'm not going to answer for, for your actions in that sense, right? You need to come up with your own priorities list. What I want to do is I want to kind of get above that and give you some guiding principles over the top of it. What if you could say yes to the right things, no to the wrong, and serve joyfully and guilt-free all the time. Wouldn't that be a great place to be? Some of you are there right now, and you're like, it is really sweet. Some of you aren't there right now, and you're like, oh, that would, yeah, yes, that would be a great place to be. Some of you are there right now, and the reason it's so sweet is you've served in the other place for a long time before, maybe. You've said yes to the wrong things so that now you can't even say yes to the right things. And you aren't serving guilt-free, but rather uh, dutifully and and not joyfully. Greater than is about thinking. It's about evaluating our life. It's about kind of stepping out of it for a moment and just saying, how are things? How are things going? Remember from, from last week, we talked about the idea that as a church, um, there is there is this kind of circle of care. There's a lot of things that people in this church care about, and it's a pretty big circle. And when you're at the grocery store and someone says, do you want to help the needy children? Yes, I do. <laughs> why, would you, why would you not go, yes, because you're overworked? Because in your mind, you're thinking, if I say yes, then what, Right? So we talked about is, as a church, our circle of care is always going to be bigger than our circle of influence. Here's our circle of influence right here. Our circle of influence is what we can handle, right? So arms this much, you can't handle this much. You get overworked. As a church, you split. You can't figure it out. As an individual, we always have more that we care about than what we can handle or even what we should handle. 
So part of this morning is trying to figure out now individually, here are all the things I care about. God, what is it that I should handle? What is it that's in my sphere of influence that I can really make a difference and actually do something in? And do you know how freeing this is? If helping needy children, according to whatever that keypad was even talking about, is not in this circle, knowing clearly your priorities before God says, absolutely, I care about the needy. No, I'm not going to help. And you walk out of there skipping and whistling a little song because you're joyful about it. You don't walk out of there feeling like, "Ah, should I have shoved that in my backpack also? (laughs) So that's what this morning is all about. Uh, Mark chapter 1. Here's what I want to do. Because we're looking at the priorities of Jesus, we want to get clear on, on how Jesus served. What did Jesus say yes to? What did he say no to? Did Jesus come to serve? Absolutely. Do we see him serving and giving? Yes. But I want to show you from Mark chapter 1 a handful of things. Um, starting in verse 9, we're not going to really uh, read each, each verse, so you can go home later on and, and you can read the entire uh, chapter of Mark 1 and kind of see where I'm getting this. But what we see is Jesus is baptized. Starts off his public ministry recorded here in Mark, but with his baptism. Next we see that he's tempted by Satan. By the way, one of the temptations that we read elsewhere in the Gospels, Matthew 4.10, says that Satan tempted him to serve him. And Jesus, all three times, responds with the word of God. He responds with scripture, and Jesus answers this way, you are to worship and serve one only. And it's not Satan. Interesting that one of the temptations of Satan to Jesus was to get him off track of where he served and whom he served and what he was doing. Jesus knew how to answer that. Do we know how to answer that when that comes? Uh, Verse 15, he proclaimed the gospel. That's how he starts off his ministry. Verse 16, he recruited a team. He began to call disciples to himself, showing quite clearly church ministry is a team sport. You are not called to do this alone, even if you're Jesus. Verse 21, he went and preached in church. He didn't abandon the church to start this brand new thing. He worked within the system that was there. He encountered resistance. He gained fame. Catch this in verse 33. He healed many, but not all. Verse 33 says, the whole city was at his door waiting to be healed. That's a lot of people. He started to gain some real notoriety, and he healed many, but not all. He had time for personal devotions. He pulled away for prayer, for alone time, for seeking the Father, from stopping and pausing from these miraculous things that he's doing, these great words that he's teaching, these people that he's loving, to pull back and have quiet time with the Lord, with his Father. He had demands and expectations placed on him. And he disappointed people and moved on resolutely with his mission. All of that you will find in in chapter 1 of Mark. That is a lot. That's a great little snapshot to just see, here's how Jesus ministered. Now, that's not the totality of how he ministered, but there is a lot to glean from there. We're not even going to take Mark 1 and really unpack it and learn a whole bunch of truth from it, but I think there's a lot to kind of mine there if you're interested. Here's what I want to point out. Look at, look at Mark 1.37. In Mark 1.37, it says this. 
This is Jesus who rose early in the morning while it was still dark and went to a desolate place and prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Verse 37 says this, And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. You know how words are said sometimes, and there's the technical, straightforward meaning up here, but then there's something that we refer to sometimes as the subtext of a message? You know what I'm talking about? What is, what is the subtext of this message, do you think? Yeah, where, where were you, right? Everyone is looking for you. I, I mean, it sounds to me like this. It sounds to me like Jesus... You've now opened the gate that you're this Messiah. You've got this title. Act like it. There's demands being put on him right here in this moment. There's expectations being given to him. You've got this good thing going. People are starting. The whole city's coming out here. I think we can really move on this thing. So there's demands and expectations put on Jesus. And you know how Jesus responds to it? Let's go. Let's go. We're done here. I've got other places to go and people to see. Priorities, catch this. Priorities is about making choices, and priorities is about disappointing people. Someone said that leadership is disappointing people at a rate that they can handle. That's a pretty fair definition of leadership. You have to make decisions sometimes that let people down in a major way. Jesus' response in the very next verse is, we're out of here. Pack up your things. We're moving on. As you read further on in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, what you see is you get this picture of Jesus, and he knew his priorities in ministry, and it wasn't to meet every last need. Pretty interesting to look at that. So what about us? How is it that we're to mimic this? What are the priorities that we see? I'm going to give you a, a statement today, a sentence today, that I, I want you to hold on to this. This is what I want you to grab and walk out of here with. And it's put in your, in your notes, so there's really just only, only one thing to kind of fill out this morning. And I'm getting this from the life of Jesus and the pattern of the New Testament letters. And the life of Jesus and the pattern of the New Testament is this. Right theology precedes right living. We just studied through the book of Galatians. Do you remember that in Galatians? Galatians was all about this. Be this, and then do this. In most of the New Testament letters, you will see a few chapters on be, right thinking of who you are, what God's already done, and all of that. Now, here's how to flesh it out. Be, then do. So in a, in a, in a sermon all about serving and doing and a call to action, You know what I'm going to spend the bulk of this morning on? I'm going to spend the bulk of it on making sure that we have right theology before we even get to right living. And and the reason I'm doing that is because I think the Bible holds that up as of utmost importance, as in greater than. It's more important to me that you are doing things for the right reason and the right motive and out of the right place rather than a bunch of activity that seems to be really efficient and doing lots of great things. So here is the sentence that I want you to write down. Rest in the finished work so that you can strive at the good work. 
Rest in the finished work so that you can strive in the good work. Did he just say rest so that we can strive? Yes, deal with it. It's called paradox, right? The Bible is full of two truths sitting side by side and having no problem with leaving them there and causing your brain to hurt, causing you to think really deeply about that, causing you to evaluate and say, how can that be? Is there such a thing as as restful striving? You can be the judge of it. I'm putting the sentence out. I want to show you where I'm getting this, and we can go from there. Uh, rest in the finished work. Let me lay a bombshell on some of you. God doesn't need you. That's a blow to our ego. It's even a blow to some Christian teaching that circulates. That kind of overinflates us, overinflates our ego, overinflates all the things we have. Rob brought up a great passage, Ephesians 1. All, every spiritual blessing that's been given to us. We can read that and, and take that in the wrong way and start to overinflate, right? And sometimes God comes along and needs to pop, kind of remind us of some things. Let me show you a couple of verses. You can just jot these down. They're on the screen. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need me. Psalm 50, verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Let me ask you a question. Does the patient ever serve the doctor? No. The doctor serves the patient. Our life in God is always one of utter dependence and receiving. Utter dependence and receiving. Was not this the message of Galatians? Right from God. We are made right from God. It's always from God. It's not us doing anything back. So maybe for some of you, this will be the most freeing and maybe challenging words of the whole morning. Here it is. Do not work for God. Do not work for God. Working for God belittles God as if he's an employer that needs employees to accomplish the things that he's trying to do. There are some business owners in this place who have employees. They are not sovereign. They can't possibly accomplish what they need without their employees. Working for God... And having that mentality is belittling. We receive. That's paramount. That's first. That's priority before we even get to talking about what ministry looks like, about what serving looks like, about what it means to, to give like Jesus. We don't get this. We're in grave danger. The sinful flesh is always wanting to chip in. It's always wanting to help out. It's always wanting to pay God back in some way, shape, or form. 
from Galatians, a book we just studied through, Galatians 3.2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Unintended consequence. I can get up here and talk about serving God. The good that I'm striving toward might have this bad result. People walking out of here thinking, I need to be perfected by doing more. I know I'm not praying like I should. I know I'm not living a self-sacrificial life like I should. I read the Gospels. I read what Jesus does. I certainly don't have a mindset like I should. God serves us by justifying us. God serves us by sanctifying us. You are a receiver. Get that in your head. The comfort and energy that come from the finished work of Christ is really, really massive. Rest in that. Rest in that. For Christians, the cross is pretty important. Amen? Yeah. How important is the empty tomb? Pretty important. Without the empty tomb, the cross is just bad news. It's just more bad news. One more failed savior... Did some things, right? The empty tomb's massive. Here's something that I think evangelical Christians, at least the streams I've grown up in, don't talk as much about. How important is the ascension? Pretty important, right? Very important. The cross and the empty tomb are massively important, but so is the ascension. The ascension is Jesus being taken back up to heaven. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. When is sitting down more than just sitting down? Two quick examples. One is a lawyer who is making a case for the person that he's defending. And as he walks around the courtroom giving fact after fact after fact and pointing to exhibit after exhibit and walking up to the jury and and pleading with them to use their brain and to show that their defendant is, in fact... Not guilty. And then walks back to his chair after a big crescendo and sits down. That's an example of when sitting down is not just sitting down. Here's another example. It's the mom who wakes up early in the morning and begins to care for the things that are going on that day. And breakfast has to be made, diapers have to be changed, lunches have to be packed, people have to be taken places, the house has to be clean, appointments must be kept. And at the end of a 14-hour day, the last child is tucked in for the moment. (laughs) Almost sounds like I'm talking from experience. And mom, for the first time, in 14 hours, sits down. Sometimes sitting down is more than just sitting down. Mark 16, 19, So then the Lord Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sitting down indicates the work is finished. Rest in that. 
think on that. All right. Now that that's there, we have some good kind of solid footing to begin moving into and talking about the rest of the morning. Let's move on to so that. Rest in the finished work so that. The finished work has an effect. It actually leads us to the good work. It is finished, uttered by Jesus, doesn't mean that you are finished. In Christ, we're a new creation, but as a part of the new creation, we have a brand new assignment. Remember that? There's a great love to be walking in. There's a great assignment to be pursuing. Sometimes called the great commandment and the great commission that we've talked about a lot. Remember the play button? The play button is the top point of the triangle is just worship. It's our relationship with God. It starts there. He calls us into a family. He doesn't leave us all alone, so it moves down to the next point, and that's community. That's being, that's being placed in a spiritual family. God sets the lonely in family. That's what the Psalms say. But we don't just ping pong back and forth between the two left points of the triangle. They have a point. They're going somewhere. That's the word share. We use the word share around here a lot. God saved you. God placed you in a community to give it away, to share, to go get on with it. It's pointing in a direction that indicates movement. How did this ascension affect the first followers of Jesus? Mark 16, 20, the very next verse of Jesus being taken away to sit down at the right hand of the Father, says this, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Now, I don't know how many nominees there are in the scripture, but this has to be in the top ten of the understatements of the world. They went out and preached the gospel while the Lord worked with them. That's a really, really comforting verse. Because much of the time when you're in spiritual warfare and, and living this life, you don't know what the heck you're doing. The Lord working with you is great, great news. And it's a massive understatement. This week, I uttered these words. Eli, Eli's three years old. He's my son. Eli, hold this end of the tape measure, right here. How did that go? <laughs> right. Hold it. Hold this end of the tape measure. We finally got it. We finally got the measurement. Once it was held on tight, I got it quick, right? Um, I've got two three-year-olds, so when one three-year-old helps, the other one wants to help with something, right? Um, so, so with Kaya, uh, in the not-so-distant past, Kaya, help me carry this gallon of milk. Okay? Now, um, gallons of milk are pretty easy to hold these days, right? It's got that sweet handle, right? It's sealed. Um, Kaya helped me carry the gallon of milk. Now, when I see my son help me measure something, and I see my daughter help me carry milk, I can kind of get a picture of the fact that they helped carry out my will, but they didn't need me. Even more powerful, though, is that I wanted them to help, and I chose them to help. And they helped. They helped carry out my will. Did I need them? No. In fact, because I'm not sovereign, it's risky to have your three-year-old help carry anything. We are, in fact, God's hands and feet in this world. He does, in fact, work through us, 
But this is his world. It was spoken into existence by him. So he never needs us, but he does want us. The word so that just reminds us that any good work that we will ever do is linked back to the great work. So we will talk about the great work all the time. I don't ever plan on stopping talking about that. We will constantly look back at that. Anytime we're over here talking about the good work, we're always going to reach back and talk about the great work so that this good work could happen. Rest in the finished work so that you can strive at the good work. I chose the word strive on purpose. The Bible's full of urgent striving. Effort. Don't lollygag. Don't be lazy. Let me show you just a tiny bit of where I'm getting this. In your notes, Ephesians 2.10. It says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you want to circle that, that might be good. Which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. A couple chapters later, same book. Talking about Christian leadership. God's given leaders to the church that are gifted to do certain things, and it wasn't to do it all. It's a team sport. The leaders and coaches are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body in Christ. Good works, even work that's good, is still work. Requires effort, requires striving. Don't be, don't be duped by the, by the lie that says, man, coming to Christ is, you know, once that's there, just hang out on the top point of the, of the play triangle. It's just you and God. There's no effort, there's no work, there's no assignment. You'd have to tear out a lot of your Bible, cut out a lot of your Bible to land there theologically. Here's exhibit B. The life of Christ. If we're following in the footsteps of Christ, and he was a servant, and he came to give, we see that being a servant is costly. It requires determined effort. It's uh, it's neither frantic nor lazy. It's an interesting thing. You read the life of Jesus. He's not just panicking, but he's not lazy. He, he will stop everything and, and attend a party. We don't have a lot of details about those things, but but he ate meals and and he walked places. It was a slower-paced uh, lifestyle. But Jesus was managing the whole city coming out to him to be healed. He was restful and yet resolute. Here's where I want to wrap up this morning. I don't think it's news to anyone here, probably to most of you here, that you were created for good works. That's just tapping into what you already know. Here's the question that might need some, some investment. Do you know what those good works are? Do you know what the good works are? I think if you just leave it in a really general way, well, to love God and love people, I'd ask you a follow-up. Okay, what does that look like? You were created for good works. Do you know what those are? Now, starting off in ministry can be really, really scary. Take away those words, and it looks something like this. There are so many needs out there. I've never done something like this before. I've done this in the past and got really, really burned, and I'm hurt by that. 
What do I do with this? There are some who are content to rest only. These are the people who read their Bibles, are hearing from God in a sense that, man, I'm called to do something, not just, not just sit around and wait, you know, wait to die. I should probably do something. I should probably get up and, and do something. I, I should take a step. Uh, I should start pursuing things. I should pray about it. I'll just eat a sandwich. Like, that all just, it, all, you just, there's a lot of should. There's a lot of, I, I really have a sense I should do that. I'm praying about it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I, I'm just, I'm just gonna eat a sandwich and have some more quiet times. And there are some people in the church who are just at rest. Do they understand the finished great work? Yeah. Are they resting in that? Yeah. But they've just stayed there. My sense is that more people fall into the second camp. It's those content to work only. You, your life might be marked by compliments that praise your determination and your discipline, your reliability, your creativity, how ingenious you are, how, 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 how much you pursue things, how hard you work. But if you're really honest, maybe, maybe you've been doing all of those things and you look at your life and go, yeah, but you know what's devoid of all of that is what we talked about last week. The guy who goes and sells all that he has so he can gain the treasure of walking with Christ, and part of walking with Christ is walking in these good works he created us to do, and in his joy, he goes and sells all he had. You know how I know something's wrong? is if for an extended period of time, there is no joy in your ministry. If there's no joy in your ministry, something is broken. Does that mean every moment of ministry is joyful? Servants of God say no. Absolutely not. We don't walk around with a goofy, cheesy smile on our face, and there's conflict and there's disappointment, but we don't have the freedom to be real about that, so we're like, no problem here! Right, Jesus? Those are people you don't want to be around because when they explode, it's, it's really, really messy. They've been cut from a cloth. They've been given a theology that doesn't give them an opportunity to be real people. They, they've just been told, serve joyfully, and so put on more of a show. It's a lot of pressure cooker to be around. You don't want to be around that. There are those who rest only. There are those who work only. Jesus left many things undone. Here's the question for you, Silicon Valley Christian. Do you? Do you, leave, do, do you leave things undone? Do you leave certain people disappointed, unfollowed up with? You can't do it all. That was a hard message to preach because some of you, I'm like, do something. Follow up with one person. Start with your pet. I mean, just practice. Do something. Start in the mirror. I don't know. Get going. But for others of you, I, I, I just want you to see from Jesus, he, he left some things undone. Because he was forced into making some choices. And he had to choose greater than. He had to choose the Father's will. We just sang a great song, Made to Worship. You and I were made on purpose. 
and Jesus wants you in his service. Not just a worship service. He wants you in his service. You may not be needed as you once thought, but to know that you're wanted and chosen to partner with God in accomplishing his will on the earth, that there is, it's hard, I'd be hard pressed to think of a better thing and place to walk in than in that place. John Piper says this really well. The difference between Uncle Sam, I want you, right? The difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you uh, in his service unless you are healthy. Jesus Christ won't enlist you unless you are sick. Amen? That is great news. We're not looking for the all-stars. There are no all-stars. What three-year-old is great at measuring things? None of them. How often do three-year-olds spill milk? A lot. Come to my house and babysit. You can see it firsthand. But Jesus Christ wants you. Man, that's such a reverse message than, we're dying for volunteers. The boss is on my case. We've got to get more people in here or else this thing's not going to get done. Totally flips it on its head. We sang a line this week at, at man camp, which was awesome, and not just because there was lots of bacon there. We sang this line, creation sings your story. Singing creation sings your story, which we've sung a lot in here, is different than singing it there because we had wall-to-wall windows looking out into the redwoods. And as soon as I was done there, we got to walk out and wander around and just look around. And as we sang the line, creation sings your story, we dismissed into a solo time. And here are just some of the things that I observed. By the way, a few minutes later, our speaker got up to speak and there's windows behind him. And I'm thinking about how, how, how is that true? How is creation seeing your story? We're out here in, in creation. God, show me that. And a little hummingbird just comes up in the window behind Sean over his head. And I'm like, man, hummingbirds are cool. You see why we don't have windows behind me? Because it would distract you. But my brain goes, hummingbirds are so cool. Look at them just hover there. That hummingbird was created on purpose. That hummingbird could do certain things really, really well. And when that hummingbird does things, it shows off a great creator. And it blows my mind. That hummingbird is doing things I couldn't possibly do ever. That's pretty cool. And then I walk outside and I see the bark of a redwood tree. And the bark of a redwood tree is just really magnificent if you just sit and look at it close up. You look a little weird doing it. I'll just, get, <laughs> I just, I'll just warn you of that. But the bark of a redwood tree is magnificent. And I know a little bit about that. I've, I've studied redwoods a little bit, and I understand some of why it's there and, and why, why it was designed the way that it was. Ethan and I are in the bathroom. And um, while we're in the bathroom, a cockroach comes out from underneath Ethan's foot. Women, aren't you glad you don't come to man camp? Right? <laughs> that would destroy women's retreat for a year. We'd, they'd move places, period. But at man camp, you just stomp on the thing. You know, you just kill it, put it, put it out of its misery. We're out playing wiffle ball on, on grass. And when you see a field of grass, it's beautiful. When you zoom in and look at one blade of grass, you're like, wow, that's, that's a really cool little invention. 
And then you kind of step back and think about the warm sun that's illuminating everything that we're seeing. And then nightfall comes and you walk in late from being out at Mary Ann's and you see a massive moon shining through the trees. And you see stars that are just dazzling once you turn off all these lights of the city. And then you think about the line, creation sings your story. And you think, wow, I was made on purpose. You were made on purpose. You were created to do good works. Go walk in them! Don't you see how much this is a get-to statement and not a have-to statement? If you're hearing have-to, you're hearing more. I should be, ought to, duty. And I, I want to leave you with a get-to mentality. Band, why don't you come on up? Just now, we are going to celebrate communion, and the way that we're going to do that this morning um, is this. The ushers are going to pass around um, a tray, and, um, and if you're a Christian, you don't need to be a member of Neighborhood Bible Church, this is, this is the Lord's table. Then I would invite you to take um, a little piece of unleavened bread. The unleavened symbolizes the sinless body of Christ. That's why there's no leaven in it. So you're going to take that little, that little cracker, you're going to take a little cup of, of grape juice, and I just want you to hold on to it. And after one song, I'll come up and I'll lead us, and we'll all take it together. One of the things that communion signifies is, is this thing. We, we, need to, we need to do this for ourselves. What, what do I care about, God? But what can I handle? What should I be doing? But we're not just doing this individually. We are coming together and saying, what are you doing in, in all these different people around me? Collectively, as a church, what are we supposed to care about? But what are we supposed to really zoom in and actually do? And it just reminds us that, that we're a body, that this is a team sport. So even as we worship Jesus in this way, take it, and this morning, we're going to all take it together, just as a symbol of that, that there's no Lone Ranger.